Melissa Wilkinson is rare among film critics for writing frequently about documentary film. Now she has a new job at the New York Times. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Let me start with some personal history. Back in 2005, I had a feeling that documentary film was taking off in new directions. I started a screening series at New York's IFC Center called Stranger Than Fiction. Every Tuesday, we'd show a new documentary that would spin into passionate audience conversations at a nearby bar. But the energy I was witnessing wasn't reaching the columns of film critics. I wrote about it on the Stranger Than Fiction website in a post titled, Wanted, Documentary Critics. I was trying to make a case that the field was wide open. Unfortunately, there was a bigger crisis going on in film criticism. Jobs were falling like dominoes, and that trend has only gotten worse. One bright spot I could point to was Alyssa Wilkinson. In her position at Vox.com, she wrote about documentary with a unique depth of interest. Last fall, I was pleased to hear that she was taking a new job as a film critic of the New York Times. She fills the position previously held by A.O. Scott. Just a few months into the job, she's already launched a column called Documentary Download, where she's explored themes of true crime, celebrity, love, and war. In addition to her criticism, Alyssa wrote the book Salty, Lessons on Eating, Drinking, and Living from Revolutionary Women. That includes a chapter on the filmmaker Agnes Varda. She has a new book coming next year called We Tell Ourselves Stories about Joan Didion. Alyssa grew up in a conservative Christian community and wasn't watching a lot of movies in her youth. I asked her to describe that upbringing. You know, I I don't come from a family of moviegoers, really. I mean, I should say my family do go occasionally, but there's no cinephiles in the lineage that I know of. Um, So that was part of it. And then I also, yeah, was brought up in a really conservative religious community and um, movies were viewed and still are with a lot of suspicion. Um, Not always without cause I mean when I go back and watch movies from the 80s and 90s I'm like oh yeah it was different (laughs) um but in any case uh I I you know I probably watched the same you know 12 movies over and over as a kid and they were like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and then like that movie about C.S. Lewis's family and you know like some like family-friendly films that um you could like subscribe to a service and they'd send them to you so I've seen I had seen that kind of thing but I wasn't at all familiar with the great works of cinema and then I went to for college I went to a STEM school so that wasn't part of my education there either I think the only movie I saw in a classroom in college was being there which was because it was a media theory course and the professor quite brilliantly showed it to us and I had no idea what I was looking at it was very confusing um but I did read a lot we were huge readers um that was everything. That was my whole life. And so I think that's good. So I don't have some of the nostalgic attachment, I think, that a lot of critics have to like the movies they loved when they were kids. But I do really care about the text and how it's kind of functioning, you know, as as a piece of writing as well as cinema. Um, And, you know, you can learn 
a lot of the things you learn when you like learn to look at a painting are very applicable to when you're looking at a film. So uh, when I moved to New York after college, I was working in financial technology, which is what my degree was in. And I on the side just started like writing things because I hated my job and I was bored and I had moved to the West Village, which means I was living a couple blocks from both IFC and Film Forum. And um, the guy I started dating, who I've been married to for almost 18 years now, um, he had gone to film school, was working in independent film at the time and knew, you know, everything as far as I was concerned. So I started going to the movies and started thinking about them differently and really immersed myself. And that was a big, important part of my journey. And so what were some of the films or trends that gave you an awakening to, yeah. to films as an art form? Well, so it was 2005 when I started going very regularly, you know, pretty much every night to the movies. And that was a time when independent film was kind of having a certain type of resurgence. It was a lot of, um, I guess, studios were creating these arms for distributing independent film. And there was like a lot of... Um, interesting movies coming out and I for the first time was having access to international cinema in a way that you know almost nobody was having access because this is all pre-streaming um, and Netflix was new back then but they would send you movies on a disc and I was very skeptical about a company named Netflix so I subscribed to the blockbuster at home uh, version of that so that was like how you got your movies so the movie I remember most uh, watching and like having kind of a revelation about, I guess, was uh, Cachet, Michael Hanukkah's film, which is, I actually haven't rewatched it since. I'm like almost afraid to. I'm sure it's very good. But, uh, you know, it it's an interesting film, not to like spoil anything about it for people who haven't seen it, but it's an interesting film because you sort of are watching something at the beginning for a few minutes and then you slowly realize that um, it's like a tape made by somebody inside the world of the film and it's of the characters and they're seeing themselves. And I think that um, feeling of form being part of the movie, like the idea of movies being part of the movie and sort of telling you something about the story without anyone stepping up and saying, okay, so here's what's going on. That was really big for me. And it sounds silly to say it now, but I think back then it was like, oh, I didn't think you could do that in a movie. Um, a movie that's self-aware was shocking to me. So that was really exciting. And I also have a very distinct memory of, I don't know precisely what year this was, but it was somewhere around that time. Lincoln Center had a Kislowski retrospective and so and you know my my husband was like oh we have to go to all of them and I was like I don't know who this is um and we did I think we went to all of them or very close to all of them so that was the first time I saw the three colors trilogy and um you know the double life of Veronique and all these movies that really use all the tools of cinema to tell the story not just um the plot, <laughs> um, which is, I think, how a lot of us are trained to watch movies and certainly television. So those were things that really were exciting to me. I didn't really start thinking about documentary at all for a couple more years because I just knew documentaries as I, I you know, I had seen a lot of them and they were all Ken Burns films on PBS during pledge drives, which are wonderful. But I just didn't think about 
the same tools being harnessed to tell nonfiction stories. Um, but then I, you know, saw some and then I started, I did a MFA in creative nonfiction writing at some point. And a lot of the questions that creative nonfiction writers of memoir and things like that are thinking about are exactly the same questions that documentarians are thinking about, just with slightly different vocabulary. So that was where that kind of entered my my thinking. So was it while you were studying nonfiction writers that you were watching some documentaries in parallel and, and realizing that um, there is a lot uh, in common between these two forms? Yeah, I mean, it was a little afterwards. So when I was in the MFA program, I spent all my time learning to write memoir, which I do not enjoy writing, but it was the kind of thing to learn it's good for a critic to learn to write personal narrative very well because that's such a big part of what we do even if we're not using the first person and so the tools apply and then right after I finished so this is in this is like 12 years ago I um I started writing about film more seriously I guess I was taking it more seriously I was pitching people more frequently I was um trying to just work out my thoughts in public, I guess, which I think is how all critics kind of work, uh, ultimately, even if we don't let it show. Um, and in the midst of that, I started in particular, like going to Sundance and some other festivals and seeing films that were of a kind that I hadn't encountered. Uh, I would say the early 2010s into the mid 2010s were a really interesting time for nonfiction film just the kind of funding that was available for different kinds of movies coupled with the push for more diverse voices meant we're getting like very interesting works and I wound up sort of um, accidentally backwards working my way into the art of nonfiction uh, critic fellowship which was like a thing they did twice but I was one of them um, and that put me square in the middle of conversations that I kind of knew were happening, but I had mostly heard them among memoirs. And those are questions like, you know, um, is this, is it truly nonfiction? Is anything truly nonfiction? What does it mean to say something is nonfiction? And I wrote a thesis on that um, in grad school. You know, what does it, what does it mean to use real people as material and what are the kind of ethical concerns around that? All of those questions. And what does it mean to construct a narrator? Do you have a narrator? Do by, you know, eliminating the narrator, quote unquote, from the movie or, or the piece of writing, are you making a statement about your perception of yourself as a source of all authority, just all these kinds of different questions. Um, so it was a hot time for memoir and hot time for documentary, and they dovetail really nicely. So, I mean, sometimes I'll hear filmmakers say um, documentaries, fiction films, it's all the same. It's just filmmaking. And uh, I mean, I think I know what they mean, but I yeah. <laughs> but I don't think I can, you know, fully co-sign uh, no. on that. Uh, statement. No, uh, so I agree. I, <laughs> so I, I, I wonder, you know, what are the distinctions that you know that that you make, having thought about this a lot? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've definitely had conversations with you know Frederick Wiseman and other people who say that, and I agree. I know what they mean. Um, in the sense that you know every work of nonfiction is invented. 
um, in that you have to edit things together. You have to create a, something out of something else. Life does not work as a movie without some finessing. Um, the way I thought about this when I was writing about it in grad school uh, was I, I kind of came into it backwards. I was writing a thesis on the use of the second person in memoir, which is like not a very interesting topic to anyone except me. But it made me work my way into realizing what, for me, the distinction between fiction and nonfiction is. And it's basically, uh, it resides in the relationship between the viewer and the film, I think. And what I mean by that is, if I'm watching something that's nonfiction or reading something that's nonfiction, I have a reasonable expectation that I could bump into this person on the street, <laughs> that this is this thing that I'm looking at occurs in the same space time continuum as me, <laughs> um, that I could I was watching a, a documentary that's coming out soon uh, shot in New York and I was thinking like how funny it is that every time I watch one of these I think like am I going to see myself walking through the back of the shot because that could happen. That's not going to happen in a fiction film because the expectation is that this is a universe that might be very very like our own and have people in it who who live in our universe but it's a separate thing. It's it's uh, a part. And I don't have any expectation that I'm going to run into, you know, Leonard Bernstein on the street and he's going to look like Bradley Cooper, right? So there's a lot of blurring there. And I know that in different parts of the world, it's seen a little differently. That distinction gets blurrier. But I think it's useful for me because I was thinking about this just before we hopped on this uh, on the mic, but the um, the relationship between the nonfiction film and the audience and the expectations there are like closer or something than they are with fiction. Like I don't I I don't have the same expectation around things like truth and manipulation with um, you know a, a fiction film that I would with a nonfiction film, and I think that's where a lot of the ethical questions and considerations pop up um and of course the <clears throat> the filmmaker is the author of the fiction film but being an author of a non-fiction film is a completely different thing it it's you know there's many ways to make a non-fiction film and documentary is not a genre and all of that but there's definitely things that a you know a non-fiction filmmaker shouldn't do uh without being very upfront about what their technique is uh, in a way that you can get away with basically anything in a fiction film. And for me, it's basically fine. So I have my own take on trends and documentary today, and I'm sure listeners have their own opinions, but I'd love to hear what are the things that stand out to you about what's happening in, in documentary film today, the, the films that are reaching you. Yeah. Um, it's been weird. I'm a little a little disappointed. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's film. It's movies are driven by business and by technology. That's just always been true. Every big development in the movie business has been essentially technological or sometimes labor related, right? So the big, the big shift over the last five years was the, well, the pandemic and the kind of, you know, fortuitous introduction of streamers. So many dang streamers <laughs> and there are so many things that streaming um the streaming economy and the way people interact with streaming created that the it feels like 
has profoundly affected documentary, maybe more than any other form. So one of those things is the expectation that people watching something on their television will just flick away if they get bored in the first two minutes. And, you know, it it is true that documentary has been a more TV-heavy form for a long time. Um, But when there were five channels on my TV, I, you know, if I was bored in the first two minutes, I might not flick away. I might give it a few more minutes. And now I, with infinite choice comes kind of infinite possibility. And so one thing that has clearly happened (laughs) is uh, documentaries that kind of have little trailers for themselves at the beginning of the movie. And they kind of tell you everything that's going to happen in the first three minutes. And I know exactly why that's happening, but it is disappointing as a person who likes to be surprised by (laughs) movies to kind of know where it's going. And on top of it, it kind of happens in the midst of the uh, forms of documentary that seem to be getting made uh, in abundance and and funded. And it's the kind of work that I know filmmakers end up getting, which is celebrity portraits or true crime stories. And those are the two dominant types of movies that get sent my way. And I, you know, I've joined the Times quite recently, so I'm still kind of getting up to speed with how I'm going to cover it. But I am trying to see everything that comes out every week when I can, um, uh, documentary-wise. And this is most of it. (laughs) And I'm not a true crime watcher otherwise. And I don't, you know, I can count on kind of one hand the number of celebrity portraits that I thought were really illuminating in some way. Uh, But I understand why they're popular. Again, you know, the celebrity portrait is an extension of a bigger societal shift towards celebrities really controlling their own image on social media. This is just an extension of that most of the time. They're produced by the person who under question. And so it's sort of like taking a nice, comforting immersion in the person you already know and like, or someone who you kind of vaguely know and you want to learn more about them. But the purpose is education and the purpose is not revelation at all, usually. And when there's a revelation, it's usually so small that it's just like to get a headline. Just enough for a critic to write about to say, exactly. oh, you know, this, I mean, it, it's almost like a formula. Like we're going to give you this mm-hmm. one new thing you've never heard. Yes. Um. <laughs> yes. To get the headline that then becomes the tweets that then people talk about. Okay. So that's boring to me, but it's a thing that exists and I understand why it exists. Um, and then true crime is a time-tested thing that people have loved for a really long time. I was remembering recently, I mentioned in a column that, you know, you could switch on like Lifetime or, you know, some TV um, channel that Dateline, that kind of thing. And it was always like the shocking story of the woman who didn't realize her husband was a serial killer or something like that. We love that stuff. It's shocking. Um, it's occasionally been played with by documentarians in a way that I think is really interesting, but it's hard to find those. Most of them are like, the story is barely interesting and there's already a podcast or three about it. And so, you know, it's just, it's background noise. And so I think that's what streamers really have given us is the documentary, like other things as background noise, something you throw on in the background. And if you walk out of the room to get the door, it's not going to matter. So that's really disappointing. On the other hand, there's been like interesting developments in the past five to 10 years that I'm really excited about, a lot of which are um, 
partly due to the technology being very cheap to make a documentary and also a generation of people who are much more comfortable with filming things and being on camera and also a little more savvy about their own image. That's kind of interesting to watch. And then, of course, there's been a lot of philanthropic um, funding for marginalized filmmakers to tell stories or work with the form in interesting ways. And I think a little bit of this you see in the Oscar nominations for documentary over the past five years or so, which have gotten weird and great. And I love it um, because I really genuinely don't know what they're going to pick, but they keep picking really good movies as nominees. And so that is heartening. But those two things are almost diametrically opposed. And I don't know what that means for the future of the form at all. At Vox over the years, I, it really made an impression on me that you were um, writing about documentaries uh, more than most critics do. Um, so when you began interviewing uh, for the New York Times, uh, which is a space where I think documentaries have been underserved for all the other strong qualities mm-hmm. of, uh, of the critical team there, I wonder if that was part of the conversation at all. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of uh, interviewing for any kind of critic job is, you know, partly they're trying to, they know they have a hole they need to fill. (laughs) And this was an A.O. Scott shaped hole, which is like, you know, quite, quite a, quite a lot. Um, But also they, they're thinking about how things have evolved over the 20 years since they last hired a film critic and what, where are those gaps and what, where might it be helpful to have a consistent staff voice thinking about certain topics and like what I bring to the table is basically I have a strong background in writing about um, like religion in film which is something that often also has gotten a little skipped over uh, in mainstream media the times is hardly the only place Um, and then the other is you know is documentary and thinking about I I would argue it nonfiction generally uh, is the most important thing we could be thinking and writing about right now um, for multiple reasons. One is like reality TV basically dominates. We were talking yesterday in the office that we'd all read that there were three new pilots ordered in the TV season (laughs) as compared to a hundred. So that just tells you reality is a big part of it, right? That's, that's cheap non-unionized people love to make it so reality operates on some reality tv operates on some principles that um are you know documentary based (laughs) they're they're talk about making fiction out of non-fiction but that's that's the job um but then you know there's a lot of interest in documentary our readers love a column that goes up monthly about like three docs you should watch i mean it's just like hugely read and that's really interesting to me because I think there's a huge interest in you know just learning I think is the way that most people think about it but there's a lot of room to challenge and grow in that space and then also I think with the advent of AI and misinformation and the kind of astroturfing of reality that's going on broadly um, in the world and it's just kind of getting scarier and scarier Uh, in addition to everybody's kind of a documentarian at this point um, 
all of those factors make it a very different landscape than it was 20 years ago uh, when I was in college. And so I feel like helping, you know, the biggest thing that a critic can do a lot of times is helping people uh, put words to the things that they've felt or feel nervous about or <laughs> are interested in but don't really know what it is or why. Um, and so hopefully that's something that I can bring to the table at the the times, which is very influential in the way that people think about movies, but also to just expand their palettes. It's really important to me that people don't think that a great documentary is one where they're interested in the topic. That's just, there's so much more to know about the world than whatever, you know, you can be educated on in a doc. And so bringing those in front of people and saying like, here's what's interesting and maybe it feels a little challenging but like here's how to watch it that can be really really helpful for people i think thinking about film criticism you know there i feel like film criticism today lives under the shadow of an era 50 years ago when critics like pauline kale or andrew saris could spark heated discussions uh, about film that were at, at the center of the culture um, and today's media landscape is a very different one. Um, so I wonder how you think about the practice of criticism today. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because there's so many different ways that people think about what who is a critic at this point. <laughs> um, you know, people will immediately jump to talking about Letterboxd or something like that. And there is actually good criticism going on on Letterboxd I, and often very funny. I'm, I'm quite impressed a lot of the time. But um, my job is increasingly rare. There's a very, very small number of us who have full-time jobs writing criticism at this point. And I think for me, um, a lot of what I think my job is, is not, not telling people what to think <laughs> or not not saying you're an idiot if you think this is good or bad or something like that that there was a place and a time for that I think where everyone was already talking about the movie and so you know people enjoyed reading proclamations from critics I'm just not a proclamation person I think um you know, the job of a critic is to figure out how they reacted to a movie and then figure out why and try to explain it. And if you can do that, you're not telling someone else that they should have the same reaction. But the thing is, they might have. <laughs> and so for them, it might be what I used to talk to my editors about helping people process their feelings. That is a not insubstantial part of of writing criticism at this point. Um, and it can help people make decisions. And sometimes people, you know, the, the, the shame of so much criticism becoming freelance is that so much of what's valuable about criticism is following the same critic over time because you know you either completely love their taste or you hate it or you're somewhere in the middle, but they're, they're kind of a guide um, that you can trust or hate or whatever you want to do, but there's someone who can kind of help you navigate this experience of watching movies. I often compare it when I'm talking to students to a, um, a sommelier, and then I usually have to explain what a sommelier is. But, you know, uh, my friend who's a sommelier, like, knows so much more about wine than me. But his job isn't to tell me that the wine is good. His job is to help me figure out what I'm tasting, and I think for a critic, it's roughly the same 
job. Uh, and there are times when I'm like, this movie just sucks and you shouldn't watch it. Or this movie seems like it might be bad for people. I think there's room for that. But for the most part, the job is to be a guide, a, like a translator, a contextualizer, all of these things. I used to teach undergrads for a really long time. Um, and I think the job of criticism is very close to teaching undergraduates in particular who are generally like bright interested you know don't have a lot of preconceived notions about the world or not the way that you know their parents do um, but your job isn't necessarily to teach them what to think but how to think and I think critics should be trying to do that whenever they can the last piece of it though is that a critic needs to be a good writer that's just part of the job um, and what people liked about the previous or you know two generations ago the Kales and Saruses and everybody is that uh, they were fun to read <laughs> so that sometimes I think gets lost in the shuffle but I think that's why you know a Rotten Tomatoes or something is kind of a detriment to criticism because you're not actually reading anything when you're when you're doing that you've reflected in this conversation about some of the uh, market forces and technological forces that shape the the, the films we watch, and um, and it it makes me wonder about the you know, the potential for a critic, particularly in a high profile position like the New York Times, to you know speak back to uh, you know some of the people who are shaping these market forces. Uh, you know, uh, please. Stop! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Stop these, uh, you know, formulas that you know, you know. Sometimes, I mean, thinking about uh, true crime as mm -hmm. a, um, as a format. Um, uh, you know, there was a fantastic uh, podcast the last couple of years called "Running from Cops" that analyzed the show Cops um, and really did a deep investigation about what that show was perpetuating. Um, in terms of racial stereotypes and uh, falsehoods about uh, policing. And I do think that there is a dialogue that's missing between mm -hmm. the people who are running the major funders and, uh, and distributors and who are under their own pressures of right. uh, you know, feeling like they're going to lose their job and if they don't pull up a hit that is going to reach 10 million viewers, um, then then they're going to be out of work. Um, so there's that mentality on the one side, and then there's the mentality of filmmakers who are trying to do something more nuanced, audiences who would like something uh, more nuanced. Yeah. And, um, and there's... I would say that there's a shortage of uh, of discussion and analysis about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's tricky because, you know, as a critic, you never want to think of yourself as writing, or I don't anyhow want to think of myself as writing for executives or filmmakers. Um, those are like people I don't, I care very much about them, but when I'm writing, I'm thinking purely of the audience. But there are a couple pieces there. One is that the perception, well, things get made because the because people watch them, but then people watch them because they're made. So it's like a vicious circle um, and breaking that circle can kind of 
uh, that happens in, and I'll just say Hollywood as a catch-all, though that's probably too narrow, but it happens in Hollywood when, when there's proof to somebody that something else works, that's when something else starts getting made. Um, that's just how it works. So my job, I hope, or the, the, the easiest thing I can do is uh, turn people on to stuff that wouldn't have occurred to them otherwise. And they, you know, they go see it and suddenly it makes some money at the box office, which is super rare, as we know in documentary. Um, or they're, they're talking about it. Or suddenly it's, it's becoming um, visible to high-profile people who wouldn't have thought about it otherwise, right? So this movie suddenly becomes a thing people are talking about. That, um, I, you know, I'm thinking of like Fire of Love a couple years ago is a movie that was partly propelled along by just critics loved it, audience, some audiences went to see it, and then word of mouth picks up. And like, that means something inside the industry. And it really means something inside of documentary because it's such a small world and nobody's throwing around $100 million budgets. So there's, there's a little bit more impact there. But I also think there's so much more social consciousness in documentary it seems to me in that world people who have at least as a stated goal that they want to make the world a better place and they want to help people overcome these you know challenges and different kinds of things and um that's where someone with my job hopefully can spotlight where that's not happening (laughs) or where it's like a failed attempt right um or where this filmmaker really deserves to be known and seen um you know in the past I I can't do this anymore but I've been on juries like at Sundance and Doc NYC and that's something you always talk about on a jury is this person maybe this film isn't the greatest film I've ever seen but clearly this filmmaker needs to be put in front of people who can help them make their very best work um and that is a little bit of what I get to do and I'm like hyper aware although it's it's been a slow dawning realization a little bit but I'm hyper aware that being at the times in particular puts a kind of institutional something on top of it where people actually listen um even you know more than they did in the past and that's exciting to me but I also know that our readership is huge it's international lots of people are reading what we're writing what I'm writing and it's really exciting to me when someone emails me and says, I never would have watched this except you mentioned it. And then I did. And it like changed my life. And now I'm going to be like looking for all these kinds of movies. And like, I just had no idea it was out there. That's so, so gratifying for me. And it's gratifying, you know, with fiction as well. But for me, knowing that nonfiction is fighting a much harder battle to get viewed most of the time, it's really uh, exciting. And, you know, as the streamers contract and the industry is going to change drastically over the next five years, I am very curious to see what happens to documentary because in some ways it's it's exactly the thing that they want um, to be able to give people because people actually really like it. Um, and it fits a lot of the bill of things. You know, it's, che- it's cheaper to make than a, a Lord of the Rings <laughs> series or something like that. Um, so maybe there's great possibility out there, and that excites me too. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about documentary is there. You know, if you go to a f- festival, uh, 
like CPH Docs or DocNYC, you're going to encounter an astonishing breadth of uh, filmmaking uh, that's happening. Um, so there's not a shortage of um, of films that are taking all kinds of chances. You know, uh, most of the films you see at those festivals are not going to start with the three minute recap of uh, uh, you know of of what's t uh, to come. Um, but there, there does seem to be a you know missing link between uh, this output and what is uh, the the what dominates the the streamers that yeah um, yeah most people are and watching films. you know so much of it is again it's commercial it's like what do people think is gonna sell <laughs> and that's that's sort of where it ends and there is also this other piece which i know we've talked about but it's very frustrating to pop open a streamer and realize that documentary is a genre <laughs> you know so like what incentive do you even have to poke around if your entire idea of what a documentary is is based on things you watched you know in ninth grade social studies classroom or something like that you're like oh that's that sounds like vegetables i don't want to do that but you know, if 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 there was some awareness among the platforms that distribute these things to most people, that you know, oh well, there's there's comedies, there's you know, there's dramas, there's love stories, there's uh, there's horror, like documentary horror. I don't know why that hasn't like taken off as a category. Um, but that those are just tools to help people to curate for people what is in front of them and help them sort of see what the possibilities are um and i i firmly believe given how popular true crime is especially that there's a monstrous untapped market out there <laughs> you know for a lot of this stuff and it's just untapped because the customer doesn't know it's there and it doesn't always feel like the streamers or the executives have any idea and you know the answer isn't really a separate nonfiction platform it's for these companies with these giant libraries of nonfiction content and putting air quotes around that but to to curate it properly and show it to people and I think there's a huge return there there's just not not been much effort in that direction I mean the other thing is when you go to a documentary festival and I do um go to them sometimes um <laughs> you know the question of whether something is nonfiction or not, like really actually bugs some people a lot. And there it's kind of an American obsession <laughs> with like drawing bright. I've done uh, panels at Sundance in the past, for instance, where this was the topic, like, is it nonfiction or not? And international filmmakers almost invariably are like, why does it matter? It's a movie. Just watch the movie. Like some of it's nonfiction and some of it's not. Who cares? But there's this feeling like we have to know. Um, and I do wonder sometimes if that's a little bit of a hamper, at least for movies getting out to an American audience. Um, but again, you know, the Academy can really go a long way in in um, spotlighting movies that should get distribution and and wouldn't otherwise. And it's been really heartening to see that happening with the nominees. Um, when you're going to film festivals, I wonder um, if you 
enjoy meeting filmmakers or if that um, is a, a, a complicated thing as a critic? Yeah. Um, so it's complicated. This is a this is a complicated question. It's complicated for me with fiction filmmakers. I tend not to I tend to I don't want to talk like I'm happy for them, but I don't want to talk to them <laughs> unless they're like a pre-existing friend. Documentary is a little different. Um, and I think it's because of that thing I said about being in the same space-time continuum and sort of, I live in the world of the doc, like we're in the same cinematic universe, so to speak. Um, and I also think documentary, good, what I would call good documentary generally needs, or a lot of it needs an interpreter to really sing. Um, it's that, that um, artist critic relationship is more symbiotic in nonfiction for whatever reason um, in the way that it would be with a painter who you know painters often have a critic who kind of helps people understand what they're looking at Um, and I feel the same way about documentary not all of it but a lot of it Um, and it really enhances and enriches the experience so for me as a critic sometimes it's really helpful to hear filmmakers talk about their work um in part because a lot of great documentary is really films about process. Um, You know, the process of making it is just as important as the end product to really understanding what it is. And it, it, it kind of blooms when you put it under that way of looking at it. I can think of all kinds of films that are examples of this, but I think it's just like, if I don't know that, then when I watch the film, I'm not really, I might enjoy it, but I'm not really sure what I'm looking at. But having the critic next to me to kind of unpack it, I don't know, I'll just, out of blue air, like thin air, the uh, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets is a great example of this, the Ross Brothers movie from a few years ago, because, um, you know, it's very unclear what you're watching <laughs> when you're watching it and it really bugs some people for that reason, and I get it, whatever, but this, this for is me, a film it's that's, like, it's, it's set in a, in a bar, and uh, the kind of question hovers over it for a viewer is like, are these people in this bar, are they, are they real people? Are they, uh, you know, cast? Uh, in, in yeah. This? yeah. And the answer was kind of like, yes, <laughs> to all of that. The bar is not quite real, but it's definitely a bar. And these people aren't patrons at the bar, but they're definitely being patrons at the bar. But it's not acting, but it's kind of, a, you know, there were all these kinds of pieces to it. And to really kind of get the, what the film was you needed all that stuff and you could read like an artist statement or whatever but hopefully a critic can do that with a little bit of distance and a little bit of um contextualization and things that often the filmmaker that's not what they're going to talk about when they talk about their movie um so yeah so I love a documentary festival for the reason that I can just sit around and listen to people talk about their movie and I find that most most documentarians in particular are like, I don't care if you like the movie, but I'm really glad you're writing about it. Um, and that's good. And, you know, definitely. definitely that's a, health, that's a healthy attitude. Yeah, it's a great attitude to have. And it's very different than what you get when you go to the fiction side of things. Um, I want to ask you briefly about the uh, book you recently published uh, called Salty Lessons on Eating, Drinking and Living from Revolutionary Women. you profile nine women in that book. And um, one is the filmmaker Agnes Varda. And I wonder if you can talk about what her work means to you. Yeah, that book was a pandemic project that um, 
became a book. Um, and I picked her in part because I just actually I picked everyone in the book because I knew about their work, but I maybe wasn't super super acquainted with everything they'd ever done and so when I got to her chapter I bought the you know the Criterion box set which is basically the complete works and watched them all and there's so much amazing documentary on there partly because a lot of it was made for um, French TV and so there's these like half hour films or you know she's so whimsical and I think so the book's just is to look at each of these women through the lens of food because it was just like an interesting lens. And of course she, um, she dressed up as a potato <laughs> for her artwork. And so that's kind of where we went with that. But um, yeah, it's, there's so much love in every frame of her, especially her nonfiction, so much love in a way that's almost, I can, you know, it's hard for me to find anyone who quite matches that she has this, She's always present in her nonfiction. She's always a character. She's usually narrating it. Um, sometimes she shows up and you really get to know her, but she's never the sole focus. Although sometimes it's like her cat is, which, you know, is is sweet. Um, but she also was very aware of the world around her and just like how how to capture it in a way that is full of love. One of my very, very favorite films of hers is Daguerreotypes, which was from, I've forgotten the year, but it's, it's very old. And she was living on the Rue Daguerre and she uh, had a camera that needed to be plugged in for her to use it. So she basically could only go as far as the cable would let her. Um, and her kids were small. And so she just goes and talks to all the storekeepers on her street. <laughs> and, you know, the one who sells the perfume and the baker and, and she starts to think about their inner lives. So you start to think about their inner lives. And it's really phenomenal. Um, really, really phenomenal. I, I feel like underappreciated is probably the correct word. But I I think about it on the regular just when I'm walking around my neighborhood, which is exactly what a great movie should do, I think, which is, um, which is sort of let you into someone else's headspace and thus alter your own and nonfiction is especially good for that. And yeah, so that was a great experience. And my, my next book, which I'm finishing revisions on now, it'll be out next year is on Joan Didion and Hollywood. Um, and she's another kind of interesting figure in the middle of all this because her, her perception of American culture tracks right alongside the changes in Hollywood and filmmaking, which includes the changes that make documentary more and more accessible to more people. Um, and she has a lot of things to say about that. So um, I'm excited for people to read that one too. Well, I'm excited to finish it first and then, and then have that Which, out in the so world. So the, the title of that book is we tell ourselves uh, stories. stories. So yeah. it reminds me of the Sarah Polly uh, title uh, stories we tell. Um, but, what was it like writing about Joan Didion, who is such a distinctive stylist? Is yeah. is there a self-consciousness that, that comes into that? Yeah. So I've learned something from reading a lot of books about Joan Didion and articles, which is that if you're writing about her, do not try to sound like her. It's a bad idea. It never works. Um, I've read a couple really unfortunate things where I just thought, what are you doing? Um, I That said, my prose style is not super far off of hers. I think I must have been very influenced by reading a lot of her as a younger writer. Um, 
so there's probably more of it in there than I realize. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was so important for me to figure out, and this is actually very related to nonfiction questions. Am I a character in this book or not? And I finally landed on no, that would be a bad idea. So that was a early, I, I appear in the prologue and the epilogue, but the rest of the book is, is driven by Joan. Um, and yeah, it's intimidating, but the greatest thing about Joan Didion is actually she's an incredible critic, um, not movie critic. She did she was a movie critic for a while, and I don't think her movie criticism is very good, but she was an incredible cultural critic um, just for being able to see things for what they are and also do that thing where you take one step back and, and look at what's on the edges of the picture instead of always focusing. So when she like switched to writing about politics in the late 80s and onwards, she writes about it as a Hollywood production, which she knew very well because she, you know, lived and worked in Hollywood and have many produced screenplays and some really good movies and some not so good movies. Um, and she just knew what a movie set is like. And she knew that these people who were running for president were basically running movie sets and being stage managed like, like you know, actors in a movie. Um Reagan said as much. So that made it really interesting to write about her and to sort of steer away from the stuff that people mostly think about when they think about Joan Didion and towards all of the riches of her cultural criticism that often is not what people are reading. So as I wrap this up, uh, you wrote in a Substack newsletter about this past year being a tumultuous one uh, for you. You had a long time teaching gig that uh, came to an end and left you with a lot of um, financial insecurity and uncertainty uh, about the future. You undertook this interview process for a New York Times job, which I take it took a long, long time. Six of, months. <laughs> of waiting, uh, how, you know, what the that outcome was going to be. Yeah. Um, so uh, a lot of worry and especially good turn of events. Um, what is, um, how do you, when you look back on this past year of all that uncertainty, how do you reflect on it? <laughs> I mean, I'm still a little shell shocked. <laughs> I also had to like suddenly move and I turned 40 last year. So all this stuff happened very quickly. Um, I I feel a little shell shocked. I feel mostly grateful, especially because, you know, I kind of, I kind of was going to take the Times job if it was offered to me no matter what, because, you know, it's, it's the job that you take. You, you don't turn that job down in criticism. Again, it was not just the best job in criticism, but the only <laughs> job in criticism. Um, so that was, but I didn't expect it to be like so good. I, I guess, you know, it's really fun. And uh, the, the, my colleagues are great. Of course they're great, but like in ways I wasn't expecting. And um, there's a lot of freedom and flexibility to really experiment and see what is going to work. Um, and at the same time, the feeling of writing for people who actually care about movies, like as an audience, is really exciting. I, I tweeted something about this last week, but the, the emails I get are wonderful. <laughs> most of them, not all of them, but compared to you know, most people when they sit down to write an email to someone who wrote something on the internet, I, I'm used to being 
getting horrible things and just deleting them. But I've gotten so many from people who have like these thoughtful stories to tell and they're really like interested in it's really nice to be with an engaged readership like that. I mean, I miss teaching sometimes, but I don't miss grading. <laughs> and I don't miss 8 a.m. classes and I don't miss all that stuff. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll teach again in the future. But I think I, I got lucky. Um, but there was also such a long period of not knowing if I was going to have any jobs or too, too many jobs or what was going to happen. And it lasted for so long that... I am still very much recovering three months in from from that experience, but I'm really happy where I am. I have literally somehow accidentally landed my dream job. I mean, I think I can say that. Um, and with the state of media the way it is, I mean, it's just a bloodbath out there right now for journalists. Um, it's awful. I mean, it's really awful. I'm just really grateful to have landed at a place that keeps demonstrating not just a commitment to journalism, but a commitment to criticism. I mean, they have, there's a lot of critics on staff at the Times, and um, they're all really good. <laughs> and it's just nice to know that there's still people out there who think what we do is valuable uh, the way that readers think it's valuable. And, and that's, that's um, not, I do not take that lightly at all at this point. I want to thank Alyssa Wilkinson for speaking with me. You can read her column, Documentary Download, in the New York Times and follow her other work at alyssawilkinson.com. See our show notes for links. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan in Helsinki, Finland, and marketing manager Bella Racklin in Los Angeles, California. I'm Tom Powers in Montclair, New Jersey. Our music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. You can follow us on Instagram at Pure Nonfiction and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Mm-hmm.